0: the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of Earth Destruction Directive, your guide to the world of Daikaiju right here on 2TrueFreaks.com. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at two episodes of the classic Tokusatsu series Ultraman as well as the final appearance of the Shogun Warriors in Fantastic Four number 226. And if you thought we did a lot of references to one of my favorite podcast, the Fantasticast. Last time, you were in for a treat this time, because uh, it further proof that no concept is too good for another podcast to rip off, I am going to be using quite a lot of the Fantasticast format, with big thanks to Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland, of course, as we're going to be taking a look at Marvel Godzilla, number one, the first issue of the very finally remembered run of The King of the Monsters in the House of Ideas here in the United States. So, we're going to take a quick... commercial break and then when we come back we're going to get right into it with Godzilla number one the fantastic Arts is your guide to the fantastic four from the beginning of the Marvel age of comics in 1961 onwards
1: each week Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue spin-off guest appearance and cameo and more
0: and in 2015 we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot the 1970s.
1: Join us as we take a look at
0: the departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, the
1: Cree Scroll War,
0: the arrival of Marvel Team Up,
1: Bill Murray as the Human Torch,
0: creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne, and of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTeams and Stitcher.
1: The fantastic cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what?
0: And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number one was cover dated August 1977 and released on or about May 3rd, 1977. Uh, this information coming, of course, from Mike's amazing world of comics at DC Indexes. Com. In May of 1977, the Texan Square Massacre in Istanbul results in 34 deaths and hundreds of injuries. Queen Elizabeth II commences her 1977 Silver Jubilee Tour in Glasgow, Scotland. Star Wars opens in cinema and later becomes the highest grossing film in history up to that time. Space Mountain opens in Disneyland in California. And A.J. Foyt wins the Indianapolis 500 to become the first driver to win the race four times. The top album on the Billboard 200 was Hotel California by Eagles, replaced by Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. The notable film releases this month were, of course, Star Wars along with Smokey and the Bandit. Notable births this month include country singer Eric Church, English actress Samantha Morton, two-time Cy Young Award winner Roy Holiday, and talk show host and conservative Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Notable deaths this month, actress Joan Crawford, B-movie icon William Castle, and former Chancellor of West Germany, Ludwig Erhard. Elsewhere in the Marvel Universe, 2001 A Space Odyssey No. 9 featured Machine Man making his full debut. The Amazing Spider-Man No. 171 was Part 2 of a team-up as Spider-Man paired with Nova to battle Photon. Part 1 is later on this list. Avengers No. 162 featured the Avengers battling against an enraged Ultron as if there was any other kind. Captain America No. 212 had Captain America battling the Red Skull while blinded. Captain America Annual No. 4 had Magneto leading the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants against Cap. Conan the Barbarian, number 77, had Conan battling against giants. Defenders, number 50, was a fantastic 50th issue, though still normal size, and had the Defenders battle the Zodiac. Doctor Strange, number 24, had Jim Starlin and Al Milgram weave a tale about the creators. Eternals, number 14, had the Eternals face to face with the Incredible Hulk. Fantastic Four, number 185, featured the FF fighting Gargoyles. Ghost Rider number 25 had Johnny Blaze with his hands full with malice. Howard the Duck number 15 had Howard trapped in the world he never made at the mercy of Dr. Bong. Incredible Hulk number 214, the Hulk is matched against Jack of Hearts. Inhumans number 12, the Inhumans are also fighting the Hulk. He seems to be everywhere this month. In Invaders number 19, the Invaders are imprisoned by Hitler. Iron Fist number 14 was the first appearance of Sabretooth as he tangled with Danny Rand. Iron Man number 101 had the Armored Avenger coming into conflict with Frankenstein's Monster in the debut of Dread Knight. You can hear me talk about this during the Frankenstein's Monster episode of Back to the Bins over during... Halloween Horror Month. Iron Man Annual No. 4 had Shellhead teaming with the Champions against MODOK. John Carter, Warlord of Mars No. 3 featured John taking his revenge on his enemies for the kidnapping of Dejah Thoris. Kid Colt Outlaw No. 219, the kid is menaced by the returning foe Iron Mask. Call the Destroyer number 22 had King Call challenged by the monstrous Devil Birds. Marvel Classics Comics number 21 adapts Jules Verne's Master of the World. Marvel Classics Comics number 22 adapts H.G. Wells' Food of the Gods. Wow, two good ones right there. Marvel Premiere number 37 features the 3D man battling the Cold Warrior. Marvel presents number twelve has the Guardians of the Galaxy in the shipyard of deep space. Marvel Tales number eighty-two reprints Amazing Spider-Man number one hundred three, featuring Spidey and Kazar battling Gog in the Savage Land. Marvel Team-Up number sixty, Webhead teams with the Wasp to fight Equinox, the Thermodynamic Man. Marvel Two-in-One number thirty, has the as the ever-loving blue-eyed thing going toe-to-toe with Spider-Woman to save Alicia Masters. Master of Kung Fu number 55 features Shang Chi seeking out the secret of the ages of death. Ms. Marvel number 8 has our heroine in the clutches of the bizarre grotesque. Nova number 12 is part 1 of the story as Nova and Spider Man try to shut down Photon. Power Man number 46 features Luke Cage stopping an anarchist group from blowing up New York City. Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man number 9 features White Tiger tussling with Spider-Man amidst protests on the ESU campus. Star Wars number 2 continues the adaptation of the film with the cover depicting the Maz Isley Cantina. Supervillain Team-Up number 13 has Prince Namor battling Krang for control of Atlantis. Tarzan number 3 has Tarzan battle a brutish cult of the Flaming God. Thor number 262 promises that even an immortal god may die. Tomb of Dracula number 59 has Dracula rooting out the traitor in his inner circle. What If? Number 14 asks, What if the invaders had stayed together after World War II and X-Men number 106 has the new X-Men battle versions of the original X-Men care of the Entity? The cover to Godzilla King of the Monsters number 1 uh, features are titular monsters smashing and crashing his way through a city. He has a building crane crushed underfoot, a suspension bridge clutched in one hand. He's breathing fire. He's grabbing a jet out of the sky with the other hand as pilots and jets take pot shots at him and parachute away. In the foreground, we see the panic-stricken populace running away in terror, including one man in a purple suit losing his cigars as his hat pops off, and a blonde woman screaming for all she's worth. Uh, I think it's a good cover. Godzilla looks dynamic and active, as I said, just breaking his way through the city. It has a really nice stark bright red background, which is a contrast to Godzilla's green skin and the bright yellow title block. It's definitely a coming at you type cover, but the only thing I would have changed is I would swap positions of the blonde and the cigar guy in the cover. The cigar guy, he's a little too goofy being in the extreme foreground with his hat popping off and a cigar. Uh, flying out of his mouth, I would push the blonde woman to the front to heighten the fear factor. Otherwise, I really dig this cover, and just as a note, this cover was recolored as the cover to Essential Godzilla. Our writer is Doug Mench, our penciler is Herb Trimpy, our inker, Jim Mooney, letterer, Joseph Rosen, colorist, Janice Cohen, editor, Archie Goodwin, and our story is entitled, The Coming. On the coast of Alaska, an ordinary day is shattered by the sudden arrival of the giant monster Godzilla, who capsizes a massive supply ship from beneath, then makes landfall for the first time in North America. Crushing a lighthouse and stopping a seaman from radioing for help, Godzilla then heads directly towards a section of the Alaska pipeline, smashing the installation into rubble. But the SOS from the supply ship is heard by S.H.I.E.L.D., and Agents Dum Dum Duggan and John Woo are on the case mobilizing the helicarrier to Alaska. Meanwhile, SHIELD Commander Colonel Nick Fury is returning from Japan with Resident Godzilla expert Dr. Yuriko Takaguchi, his assistant Tamara Hashioka, and his grandson Robert Takiguchi, who have pledged to help. The helicarrier launches their attack forces, a squadron of agents on small flying platforms, armed with lasers, who dart around Godzilla like insects. The attack is ineffectual. And is soon joined by fighter jets, which also fail to slow down Godzilla. Dum Dum Duggan himself gets into the fray, but finds his jet crunched in Godzilla's maw and narrowly escapes a similar fate. We then flash back to years prior, when, in 1956, an undersea nuclear test cracked to the bottom of the Earth and unleashed Godzilla upon the world. Of the men who witnessed the test, only the lone objector, Dr. Takiguchi survived and went on to bear witness as Godzilla ravaged Japan time and time again. Back in the present, Duggan brings in his next weapon, a massive artillery laser, which he hopes will be strong enough to pierce Godzilla's thick, scaly hide. Meanwhile, on Fury's jet VTOL, Dr. Takiguchi frets that Godzilla must be stopped so that no other country knows the carnage Japan has seen. While Tamara agrees, lamenting the loss of life, Young Robert to finally ask whether Godzilla's life also mattered. The boy is hushed as we switch back to Alaska, and the laser is deployed, scoring a direct hit on Godzilla. Enraged, the King of Monsters opens up with a torrent of atomic fire, reducing the laser to molten slag. Another blast turns the remains of the pipeline station into a conflagration which threatens to set the entire forest ablaze with it. Thinking quickly, Agent Wu goads and taunts Godzilla into taking a swipe at him, causing a rock slide which snuffs out enough of the fire to save the forest. Godzilla, disinterested, continues onward, out to sea. Fury arrives with his human cargo, and Dr. Takiguchi informs Duggan that he and Tamara have developed secret plans which could stop Godzilla. While Duggan is a little suspect, Dr. Takiguchi tells him that if their plans are not enacted, he has grave concerns about the future of America now that Godzilla has arrived. Next issue, Seattle Under Siege. Well, things certainly get started with a bang here in the first issue of Godzilla, and uh, I really enjoyed this one, not to bury the lead too much. Let's get right into the notes. Page one, as Godzilla comes out of the sea underneath the supply ship, we get a real good look at him, and Godzilla's overall appearance is somewhere between dinosaur and Atlas-era monster. He's got green skin. At this time, by the films, his skin was sort of a grayish with a green tint, and he has black eyes, which has some red highlights on them from the uh, from the explosion of the ship. And um, in the films, he had, had pupils for quite a long time at this point. And there's a dock worker present for scale, which is uh, very nice. Uh, Again, Trippy would use this to great effect later in Shogun Warriors. Actually, Godzilla is so big that part of the actual title, The Coming, is covered by him. I'm not sure if this was done intentionally or not. I have to assume it was. It's actually kind of neat. That's how big he is, is that his tail and the tip of his head actually cover little bits of the letters of The Coming in the title. That's how big Godzilla is, so I thought that was really nice. It's a good splash page to get things started, and we we go right out of the gate here, and Trimpy again draws a a Godzilla that looks menacing, if unique. He's not uh, based on any one particular version of Godzilla, I can get to that a little bit later, but he certainly has a memorable look for the character. Turning over to page 2. Panel 3, as Godzilla comes up and he peeks over the hill at the seaman who's running away, to perspective, does odd things to G, because as I said, he's not based on a model, but it's rather Trimpy's interpretation of the monster. So he almost looks kind of froggish here, because we're looking at him straight on, you know, like head out, like right in the eyes, so his nose and his face look a little flattened, so he almost, like I said, has a sort of amphibian quality, but he's still definitely menacing looking. The black eyes really do a lot to give him an inhuman appearance. Uh, The head sort of reminds me of the Aurora model kit, the kind of elongated head, but certainly a, a viable look for the King of Monsters. Later on down panel six of that page as Godzilla absolutely flattens a lighthouse with one step This is what I call a monster zero type moment There's a lot of scenes in the back half of monster zero featuring Godzilla Laying waste to buildings with these shots of the feet going through the buildings to knock them down That's exactly what we get here. So I really like that scene very nicely done turning over to page three Panel four, you get a close-up of Godzilla's eyes, and they are empty—doll's eyes almost. This is not a complaint. I like the inhuman look that we get here—just the the totally black eyes with the red light dancing on them from all the carnage that he's causing. There's there's no way that you could look at those and think, "Oh, this guy's intelligent; we can reason with him." This is not, uh, you know, some monster that. Is here to conquer the world from another planet, like an, like I said, an Atlas book. This is a force of nature, and I really think Trimpey does a good job of conveying that here. This uh, this plays pretty nicely in the essential as well, but in this in the colored version, it's really nice, I think. Further on down the page in panel five, as we got to see Godzilla pick up a crane with his right hand and just throw it around, we see some really nice musculature because we get him in profile. So we see the muscles all in his arm as well as his leg and then his hindquarters leading down to his tail. I think this is a nice bit of musculature and mobility, especially compared to Trimpy doing the giant's Uh, The giant robots over in Shogun Warriors which by their very nature did not have muscles and were always portrayed as a little more stiff This is clearly an organic being and I think it looks really good And this panel is a very nice one showing uh, G just kind of going to town on this pipeline installation Pages six through seven shows the brunt of the rampage. Godzilla picks up train cars and smashes them, uh, crushes a fuel tank in his hand, causing a giant explosion, stomps a uh, a radio tower to the ground, and then uh, picks up the pipeline and whips it around like a uh, like a whip just smashing it into the ground and uh, there's really no doubt that he is just laying waste to this place it's a really nicely done sequence there's a little bit of dialogue most of it is uh, you know run get out of here that kind of stuff so uh, it it really lets the uh, the art speak for itself there's some nice captions in here as well he's just Cut off this line of lifeblood and that it's all oozing out. So I thought that was really nice. Trippy is definitely in his element with the monster action, as usual. Godzilla has great body language as he slams all the plunder about. You can really uh, get a feel for what uh, what's happening here. Over on page 10, Shield is introduced with the helicarrier. Then we go inside to see uh, Dum Dum Duggan and uh, Agent Wu. Uh, Duggan's got kind of a high-tech looking shield uniform on. I'm not sure if this was the standard around this time, but it looks almost like a, uh, like a battle suit. It's got gauntlets on the wrists and some tech going up the sleeves and, and, uh, and whatnot. He's still got his bowler hat, of course. Just not what I would have expected. I tend to imagine Duggan with the bowler hat and then the traditional blue uniform like shield, but it's very nicely done. Panel three, though, Fury looks really surprised, like somebody goosed him in the cockpit. I'm not sure, if, and Trimpy's just going for clenched teeth, but with the, the way his eye is and his teeth and his mouth shape, he really looks like somebody grabbed him you know where, and uh, he's really surprised by it. So that was kind of an odd panel. We also get introduced to our three Japanese characters, Dr. Takiguchi, Tamara, and Robert, and um, they're fairly nondescript in this scene because all Fury says, I got three people here with... Government clearance and from the Pentagon and the White House, which means important, but he doesn't say who they are or why they're important yet, so uh, we're just kind of left to wonder until um, we find out. Page 11 is a splash page and a very Jack Kirby-style splash page, which I guess is appropriate considering it's a shield splash page, as the, uh, the the squad comes out and they're on these little flying platforms that really look like something Jack Kirby might have designed, even beyond that, the uniforms look kind of Kirby-ish, the way the page is laid out, because we see the helicarrier in the background, and then we see all these men kind of coming out like in a line. And it looks like the way Kirby would have laid out a similar page to this. Uh, it's And uh, just the whole look with the gyros and the little fighter jets and all that very much gives me a Jack Kirby vibe. Also, just kind of interesting is that the uniforms that these guys are wearing have a uh, straps crossed uh, across their chest with a big circular emblem. They look a little bit like Hawkman with that respect, although these guys are in fact wearing shirts. I just thought that was a nice splash page. Over on page 14, we get a great sense of scale once again with the men on the flying platforms zipping around Godzilla. This seems to be kind of an homage to the classic jet sorties against Godzilla in many many Showa movies that they'd scramble uh you know jets and they'd go and just get smashed to pieces whether uh, you know whether this was uh, the JSDF or red bamboo and Godzilla vs the sea monster or whatnot this was a kind of standard scene in the Showa films and I like that this is a, a nice play on it but given a nice science fiction update here by using these little uh, flight platforms that these guys have and uh, some interesting color choices here is we get some stark reds to show the background when Godzilla swipes three of them out of the sky, and we get pink clouds showing the flames reflecting off of stuff, and ni- nicely laid out. Over on page 15, as Duggan's jet is literally bit out of the sky by Godzilla, how the heck does he survive? Because his teeth, we see in panel two, are right at the back of the cockpit, so it doesn't look to me like that cockpit should be able to open, let alone Duggan be able to escape. Um, So that's kind of a, you know, you can't kill Dum-Dum-Duggan in a Godzilla comic. I think that's pretty clear. But, you know, I just look at it as like, he really should be dead. And then later on down that that same page in panel five, we see Godzilla take a fighter jet and just break it in half with his hands. It's just a really nice panel. He just does, you know, it's like... Just just wrenching it apart, very nicely done, I think, and really shows, again, the scale. This is a big fighter jet, and Godzilla's holding it like it's a toy. So I thought that was a well-executed panel and shows the, you know, this, how frantic this fight is, that this is a, a, you know, like we see in the films, this is a multi-million dollar piece of fighting equipment turned into scrap metal by Godzilla in a second. Pages 16 and 17 give us the new origin for Godzilla. This completely ignores World War II nuclear bombing. Altogether, and it pushes blame away from the Americans because it specifically said that the ship's mission was a joint nation undersea nuclear test. Now, we don't know which nations are involved. In 1956, one would assume that the Americans were involved along with the Japanese, but we don't know that for sure, and we don't know the full extent of which nations are involved. So it's kind of pushing the blame away from the Americans, which is perfectly good for the context in which it's needed here. This is a a fine origin to, to bring Godzilla. still creates a nuclear origin for the character, which is very important. We do get a mushroom cloud from the test. And Godzilla does rise from the sea and lay waste to Japan. So, all those elements are there, and I'm okay with that. And I'm perfectly happy with that as opposed to absolutely having to stay right on with the film origin. Now what's interesting to me is that as I said, they push the blame away from the Americans and one has to imagine That if we're doing a story like this nowadays in 2015 The writers would do as much as they possibly could to push up American involvement and blame in this It just seems to be the way that these stories go nowadays is that you know We have to be wrong and we have to be the villains and have to have made bad decisions And things couldn't possibly be some other more enlightened country's fault I'm not going to get political with this It's just a thought I had while reading it that here in the late 70s, we were trying to make it more generic, whereas in the, you know, uh, in the 10s here, the 2010s, I'm sure we would push up and make America specifically to blame and all other countries peace-loving pacifists who would want nothing to do with this. But that's just my editorializing I'll get off of my soapbox now. Uh, Just another note, on page 17, we get panel 2 is a very large panel, taking up at least two-thirds of the page, showing uh, Godzilla's, uh, you know, kind of a his rampage in Japan, and it's just wonderful. There's just carnage everywhere. There's smoke billowing out of all the buildings. He's knocking down things randomly with his tail. We see a train derailed and piled up on top of each other. Uh, cars toppled over. A train car being crushed in his hand. And all this, well, Godzilla is looking away from us, so we don't even get to see his face. We just see him kind of in a rear profile, so very nice panel there. I really like it. That may be my favorite panel in the entire book. And on the bottom of that page, panel three of page 17, we see the Artillery laser cannon being lowered down into position by helicopter. I think this is really a nice touch It's kind of again something you would expect to see in a Showa era Godzilla film with the artillery being moved around by helicopter Or you know King Kong being moved by helicopter if you're talking King Kong escapes But as uh, so I really like that it's a very nice piece of uh, artillery by Trimpy It looks kind of like something you would expect to see. It's uh, got tank treads on the bottom It's got an operator panel in the back the, um, the front cannon part looks kind of like a chess pawn, so it's very nicely designed little piece of artillery for the short time that it lasts. On page 22 we get the introduction, the full introduction of our human characters. It's kind of broad, and it's crammed in there but you know we need to do it in the first issue if these characters are going to be used going forward now the question that I had using this and this is just kind of food for thought about the idea of using Japanese characters and Asian American characters as some of the main recurring characters of the series now is this an homage or is this sort of a you know a racial take on it I think for Dr. Takaguchi and Tamara and Robert I lean towards the former. Godzilla stories are almost entirely centered in Japan. The monster originally came from Japan, and thus these films involve Japanese characters. So I can I can buy into that, and it makes sense. Again, this is a Japanese movie monster that we're being adapted into these comics. Uh, we've already specifically established that this monster attacked Japan numerous times in the past, and so they would ostensibly have the uh, best intelligence and the uh, best experts to deal with Godzilla so they would be Japanese. The one that's a little more troubling for me, reading this in 2015, is the inclusion of Agent Wu, because Wu is of Chinese descent, he's not of Japanese descent, because Wu started out in the uh, Yellow Peril magazine way back in the uh, pre-Fantastic Four Marvel era, um, fighting against a Fu Manchu type, and he has no connection with giant monsters at all before this issue. I would have preferred Mench create a new agent, a new field man to work with Duggan rather than use Wu because his inclusion is almost seems like, well, he's the Asian one, throw him in there. And I'm not casting any aspersions at Doug Mench. I mean, I have no problem with reusing another character. It just seems a little... I don't know. To me, this might have a uh, look a little improprietous in 2015. Again, I'm looking at it through these eyes. This book came out more than uh, 35 years ago, almost 40 years ago at this point. So I can't cast any aspersions. And it is neat to get uh, Agent Wu back. Wu goes on to be, uh, if not a major character, then a certainly a a recurring S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who's propped up numerous times in other stories. Last place I remember seeing him was, I want to say, Avengers Academy. who played a, a role in that. And I'm trying to remember if we've seen him on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I'm kind of drawing a blank on that one. So, again, the characters are, are very broad here. We get that, you know, um... Dr. Takaguchi is, you know, the responsible scientist, and Tamra is his assistant who's kind of kind-hearted, and that Robert is going to be the rabble-rouser because he asks, well, what about Godzilla? Doesn't he count? So we're getting some, some you know, the beginnings of the characters being uh, developed here, and hopefully we'll see more of that as the series progresses. On page 23, where the laser cannon is fired off, the effect of the energy being coming off of it looks kind of like the atomic heat ray from Mothra. Or the maser cannon, which is a nice touch. It's it's white. It looks like white hot flame, but the way it's drawn with the um, the inking all around it, and it looks like uh, you know an a directed energy weapon, which I think is really a nice touch. Again, very Shella in that sense. G counterattacks later on down the page using his atomic breath uh it is it looks like and is colored like fire it's you know a mix of yellows and oranges and it splotches out like fire and normally, I'd prefer to see it white or blue as a trip typically is until we get to the red spiral in the hayside, which is nowhere near where we are here. but Munch does a great job of give with the caption to sell this because he says uh, as he blasts it out and he he absolutely destroys this uh laser cannon. We hear Duggan yell, Sweet Mother, did you see that? He's spitting fire. Fire like a dragon. And then the, the caption is, Indeed, but a dragon of science, not fantasy. For it is the fire of radioactivity which bursts from the monster's gaping maw. Convincing S.H.I.E.L.D.'s advanced laser cannon, that it has more than met its match. I thought that caption did a great job of selling the atomic breath, even though it looks more like fire. And a lot of times, especially in the 70s, Godzilla was described as a fire-breathing monster. It makes sure that we understand that this is pure concentrated radiation that he's bursting out, and that's what's causing the tremendous heat. So I thought that was really nicely done. Over on page 26, panel 2 is a tall panel, standing about two-thirds of the height of the page and about half the width, and we see all of Godzilla standing up, now, a little bit of his feet are covered by the rubble, but otherwise he is standing and he is shooting his atomic breath directly at all the, um, the bystanders and the survivors who are scrambling about the wreckage of the pipeline station. It's it's another one of my favorite panels. It does a good job again of showing the perspective. Uh, we see Godzilla's uh, eyes and face full on, and there's there's nothing there. He is a engine of destruction here. He does not care. He's lashing out because uh, you know that thing shot him, so he's blasting everything around him with atomic breath. Very cool, very cool panel indeed. On page 27, here Woo tricks Godzilla into putting out the fire by he yells, "Hey over here!" Hey, come and get us! And he's, he's waving his hands and all that, and Godzilla just kind of takes a swipe at him, and that causes the um, you know the, the rock slide, which puts out a lot of the fire and saves the forest from being burned down. This sequence almost, to me, seems like a proof of concept from Doug Mensch that humans can interact with Godzilla in the story in a reasonable manner. Now, the logic of this particular instance uh, behind taunting Godzilla seems a little shaky. I mean... That Godzilla would turn and recognize someone yelling at him, that he would even hear him over the the massive fire and all that that that's going on around him. I don't know that I'd buy that, but I'm willing to chalk it up to the situation, and uh, so it 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 works out pretty well. And if we're gonna have Godzilla set in the Marvel universe, he has to be able to interact with others, uh, with 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 human-sized characters. That's just the way it is. You can't just be always off fighting robots or other monsters. You know the the. Sh- it, it it just wouldn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the setting of putting it is so squarely in the Marvel universe. Also the last panel on this, uh, Duggan through all this still has a cigar, still smoking 1977, ladies and gentlemen. Very cool. On page 30 in panel one, as Duggan and Wu look on, we see Godzilla off in the distance and, uh, this is just kind of a, a classic shot that we'd get a lot in the series of the humans in the foreground and the monsters in the background, not interested in what the humans are talking about or anything. They're got their own thing going on. Nice panel. It just shows kind of the um, the you know the that Godzilla's done. He's walking off and he's leaving the smoking ruins of the pipeline behind him. Page thirty one. After we finally introduce Dr. Takiguchi and Tamara to Duggan, uh, we got a little three panel progression at the bottom of Godzilla walking back out to sea. Um, Now, this is, of course, obviously the way most Showa Godzilla films end, with the monster leaving off in the sea. Uh, Now, could this issue have been written possibly to serve as a one-shot if they decided not to go to series with it. It really does kind of tell a one-shot story here. Now, yes, they do introduce the Japanese characters, and they do say that they have secret weapons that they can be used against Godzilla. But here, if this was not going to series, you could have this be a one-shot and just have those be dangling plot threads. Godzilla shows up, he smashes up the pipeline, SHIELD attacks him, He shrugs off those attacks, they up the ante, he counterattacks, and then he's done, he goes back to sea. So it's a self-contained little Godzilla story here. I don't have any, I don't believe there was any way that this wasn't going to go to series. Everything I've read about this has that Marvel licensed a character for one year, and then when they were coming up around issue 12, uh, decided to re-up the license for another year, and that's why it ends at issue number 24 as opposed to going to number 25. So, uh, just just some food for thought with that, because just the way the story is written, it's a nice self-contained little Godzilla story. It could have been Godzilla special instead of, you know, Godzilla issue number one. In conclusion, I mean, this is a monster on the loose in the merry Marvel manner. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Even if this was not Godzilla... You know, this was a different monster. I would have enjoyed it because of how Mensch so deftly handles a lot of the tropes of the Monster on the Loose story engine, as well as the novelty of seeing S.H.I.E.L.D. try to fight a Daikaiju. I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, they normally fight against Hydra or other supervillains. To see them try and fight a monster, that's a cool change of pace. I really enjoyed that. Art is typical Trimpy, which I like. His depiction of G does take some getting used to, I've read some other books in the series, so I know what he looks like. And again, it's hard to compare it to nowadays, like the IDW Godzilla books, where Godzilla is clearly based more on the. A specific model that they're trying to emulate, whereas here it's, well, here's Godzilla, his look has changed a lot over the two decades that his films have been around at this point, so draw something like that. And, and I think he does a good job, it's a nice version. I would like to see a NECA-style figure of this Godzilla to go with, you know, some of the other oddball depictions that we've gotten uh, of the character in toy form over the years. I, I would enjoy that. Uh, the human story is kind of shabby but it's a monster book. let's read about the monster you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna berate a book for not having characterization when it's basically a monster on the loose story like I said so I'm more than willing to bet that uh, Doug mensch is going to give us more on our human characters as we advance into the series but for now I'm more than happy with getting Godzilla laying waste to uh, the, the great state of Alaska with apologies to any listeners who live in Alaska so uh, I'll all I gotta say is go, go, Godzilla. We're head on into the Marvel era, and I'm excited to see where we go from here. I got a feeling it's gonna be a lot of fun based on uh, what we got here and uh, what I know is gonna be coming down the road in the series. In this issue, there is a house ad for Godzilla, sharing space with a Foom ad. We also get Godzillagrams, which is the letters page, but obviously there is no letters in this, so instead we get an editorial by Archie Goodwin. And Archie writes, Welcome to the first issue of Godzilla. You wouldn't think a skyscraper-sized hybrid dinosaur with radiation blast breath would have trouble getting anywhere, but it's taken almost five years for the great green one to finally get into Marvel Comics. Back in the earlier years of this fast-disappearing decade, Marvel's then editor-in-chief rascally Roy Thomas, who as writer-slash-editor still masterminding some of her most popular titles, such as Conan the Barbarian, The Invaders, and Tarzan, first began trying to acquire the rights to do the adventures of that most popular movie monster since King Kong. Legal difficulties prevented this from coming about at the time, but bullpenners are a stubborn lot, and with the constant urging of our publisher and leading light Stan the Man Lee, Marvel kept trying. I was the guy who finally got lucky. Toho Company Limited was ready to do a Godzilla comic at the time I approached them about the possibility. Once we had the rights, the big question was how to handle the character. What works in a series of movies appearing a year or more apart can also become monotonous in a comic book coming at you every month. So for the sake of variety and continuity, we opted for new adventures rather than adaptations of the films. And for the same reason, we also chose to connect the Big G with the Marvel Universe. This takes a bit of stretching, but Marvel's world, while as fragile as any imaginative creation, is also amazingly flexible. As the series progresses, we think you'll see the advantages in this. Not that we intend to have Godzilla slugging it out with a different superhero or villain every issue. Far from it. This connection with Marvel's vast cast of characters, with the exception of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents Duggan and Wu, who will be regulars, is going to be used sparingly, but at logical times, or moments when we think we can really surprise you. Some of the swashbuckling stars of our other books are going to be popping up. In between those times, you can look forward to some of the monster-against-monster free-for-alls that highlight the Godzilla films, as well as some totally offbeat ideas and themes guaranteed to keep you guessing. Another problem in bringing the lively lizard to the comics was how to present him visually. Movie buffs will recognize that Godzilla's appearance varied somewhat from film to film, as he worked his way through 20 years of starring roles. Since our approach is somewhat less tongue-in-cheek than the current films, we decided to use a variation on the Godzilla portrayed in the very first movie. The liberties we've taken, again, are an effort to adjust what works in a motion picture to an equally successful comics character. Different mediums acquire different approaches. While some Godzilla purists may object, we think most of you will come to know and love this version of the devastating dinosaur. Naturally, the final opinion in such weighty matters rests with you, and we're anxiously waiting to hear your verdict. In the future, we'll be using this space for a letters column. So don't wait. Whether you've got gripes or good tidings, let us know. Writer Doug Mensch and artist Herb Trimpy have labored long and hard getting this issue to you. I'm pleased with what they've done, but we won't be really happy until we hear from you. Thanks! Archie Goodwin, editor. And also on this page, we do get two little inset boxes uh, showing pinups of Godzilla. One looks like a trippy uh, image. It could be an alternate take on the cover with Godzilla standing tall with uh, fighter jets swooping around him as he shoots his atomic breath at them. The other is by Dave Cockrum and it shows Godzilla walking away, kind of looking over his shoulder back at us and there's a giant footprint in the uh, foreground and we see a very tiny figure at the bottom. It says, "Just wait, Frog Face." As soon as Hulk gets angry enough, Hulk will come up there and smash you. I thought that was really amusing. And Dave Cockrum draws a very interesting take on Godzilla. I like his spines and the almost cartoony look on his face. So that was pretty neat. We also get the typical Marvel subscription ad, as well along with the Marvel bullpen bulletins. Uh, Stanley's soapbox this time is a listing of. Uh, stations playing the Focus on Youth uh, pr- program that Stan appeared on. The items include mentioning of the various annuals that are coming out to mark the summer season. Uh, we also get a little item here about the Slurpee Cups available at your 7-Eleven stores. Anyone who goes to any comic book shows nowadays is familiar with these. There is also an item about Godzilla. It says, "Item: A couple of bolt and bulletin boltons back. We told you about the great Godzilla book we had in the works. Well, this month it hits your newsstand, and if you're just half as happy with the results as we are when we saw what Devil May Care, Doug Mench, Happy Herb Trimpy, and Jaunty Jim Mooney have done with Toho Productions' lively large lizard, then we have definitely a hit in the making." The next item deals with the uh, upcoming issues of What If, and then on a sad note, the, there is a small box at the bottom uh, talking about the sudden death of Bob Brown, who had died of leukemia. Bob is best known to Marvel readers for his penciling work on Daredevil, as well as Avengers and Marvel 2 and 1, and um, Bob was also uh, had at the time been working as a liaison between American and European cartoonists, and uh, he will be sorely missed. We have a hostess ad featuring Spider-Man and Madame Webb. This is not the same Madame Webb from the comics, so that's kind of odd. But it's a story that goes a little something like this. City in Panic! Webb had accused of tangling harbor in his web. Everyone thinks I'm to blame. I'm tired of running from the cops, but I must get through and save the harbor. I loved Spider-Man, but he rejected me. Madame Webb. So my revenge, I'll make everyone blame him for tangling the harbor. Spider-Man, my only love, come with me and let's run away. Madam Web, that love-crazed fiend. Well, what if I give you a whole bunch of delicious hosties Twinkie Cakes instead? Would you clear the harbor and my good name? Oh, for that, I'd clear up the ocean, the world, anything. Oh, golden sponge cake, creamed filling. First, I lose Spider-Man, then Hostess Twinkie cakes. What a tangled web! She's such a loyal admirer of mine. Yay, Spider-Man! Yay, Twinkie's cakes! You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's cakes. Yeah, this is a little weird. Um, I do just want to say all I'm going to say about this is that Madame Web's headgear. She's got a um, she's got a pink and black. Kind of like veil that goes on the head. It forms a widow's peak and then comes back around her back. Just very oddly reminds me of the hood on the Spider Gwen costume. I'm not going to go any further than that. That's all I'm going to say with it. This is kind of a strange, strange one, even for a hostess ad. But uh, uh, I do like uh, her very 70s orange and pink and black costume that Madame Web is wearing. So, moving on. So that's Godzilla number one. Overall, I think a really successful debut issue. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I can't wait to read the second one. I, I did cover the second one many moons ago on Back to the Bins, but it's been a number of years since I read it, so I can't wait to break it out, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. So I'm going to go ahead and play the closing tag, and we'll be right back with the number one song of the week of the release here on Earth Destruction Directive. TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. And we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Once again, I'd like to give a very special thank you to to Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland of the Fantastic Hats, which is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the very beginning of the Marvel Age, one of my absolute favorite podcasts. I look forward to it every week. They do a great job. They've even been kind enough to let me guest star on the show a couple of times. So thank you very much. You can always check them out at ffcast.libsen.com. Be sure to check them out, especially if you like this format, because I totally. Stole it from them. Next time on an all-new episode of Earth Destruction Directive, we'll be taking a look at Varan, one of the early solo monster efforts from Toho Studios as we continue to work through their catalog of films. And of course, we'll be taking a look at Godzilla number two from Marvel Comics as the king of the monsters makes his way to Seattle, Washington. In fact, the cover features Godzilla taking a chomping bite out of the space needle. And if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what to tell you. The number one song for the week of release of Godzilla number one is a very well-known song, very popular song, especially for me when I was in college. I had a buddy of mine who loved this band and played this song on the jukebox at the local pizzeria every chance he got. Of course, this song is Hotel California by Eagles. So have a listen, and we will see you next time. And until then, keep them stomping. present Duggan brings in his next weapon a massive artillery a massive artillery ray enough
1: said